Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 142 of Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. I'm Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and art of game mastering. Not only do I pass along any knowledge I've gained over 25 plus years of running RPGs, I also share wisdom from guest GMs and listener GMs like you. In this episode, I'll begin discussing chapter 8 of the Player's Handbook, Adventuring, which includes travel pace, special types of movement, activities while traveling, falling, suffocating, vision, and light. But before I get to that, I want to let you know that I have recently made an update to my Patreon. So you hear me mention my Patreon pretty much every episode when I thank my awesome Tier 4 patron, Steve, for his continuing support of the show. But Steve isn't the only patron. I've got quite a few patrons. Producing this show takes a lot of work, and that work takes a lot of time, and Time is money, friend. So I really appreciate it when listeners give a little back by supporting the show and helping me out and help me to continue doing this podcast that we all enjoy. So I've made some changes to the Patreon. Specifically, I have moved some of the higher tier rewards down to the tier one level. So the tier one level is only $5 a month. And for just $5 a month, which is about a dollar an episode, you can get all of the following benefits. You get access to the patron feed where you can chat with myself and the other patrons. You get access to bonus content that I provide exclusively to the patrons, including bloopers and outtakes from the show. Oftentimes, there's material that doesn't make it into the final edit of the show. So when these outtakes have value, I will upload them for the patrons. This sometimes happens with the interviews I do, as I can seldom use all of the material from an interview. So if there's stuff that I have to cut out for the final edit of the show, but I think people might be interested in, the patrons get access to it. You also get access to the Starwalker Studios Patron Cast, which is a special exclusive podcast that I do every month just for the patrons. Lately, my wife Nikki has been joining me on the Patron Cast, and we discuss just nerdy, geeky things that we're interested to that don't quite fit into the other podcasts I do. So stuff like science fiction and fantasy related movies, TV shows that we're into, all kinds of stuff. You also get access to the Game Master's Journey and GM Intrusions archives. The podcast feeds have only the most recent episodes in them. So patrons get access to all those older episodes that I've archived. So if you want to go all the way back to episode one of Game Master's Journey, you can do that. Or if you want to listen to GM Intrusions, which was kind of the prelude to Game Master's Journey, you can do that. So what's super cool is that patrons can access all of this bonus content via our own private RSS feed. So once you become a patron, you can subscribe to this feed just like you would subscribe to any podcast and easily download all the patron content into your podcast app of choice. Also, when you become a patron, I will thank you personally on a future episode of the show. So not only do you get all that super cool stuff for just $5 a month, but you also get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to support a show enjoyed by thousands of people. The patrons truly are the cream of the crop. So I hope that you'll become a patron today. You can find a link to my Patreon page over in the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com. Go check it out and feel free to explore all of the patron rewards. I have higher level tiers than than tier one at the $5 level. But again, all the stuff I mentioned today, you get for just $5 a month. It's really a steal. And then you you think of all the, the podcast content you're getting for free on top of that. And uh, with a possible exception of really big, thick fantasy books... <laughs> I don't think there's a form of entertainment out there where you get so much bang for your buck. So I hope you'll check it out. I mean, 
come on, most of us spend more than five bucks for a latte or a coffee or whatever. So help a brother out. All right, so today we begin discussing chapter eight of the player's handbook, which is titled Adventuring. I'm not going to get through the whole chapter today. There's a lot of material in here, and I didn't want this episode to be two hours long. So I will be covering the rest of chapter eight in a future episode. Delving into the ancient tomb of horrors, slipping through the back alleys of Waterdeep, hacking a fresh trail through the thick jungles on the Isle of Dread. These are the things that Dungeons & Dragons adventurers are made of. Your character in the game might explore forgotten ruins in uncharted lands, uncover dark secrets and sinister plots, and slay foul monsters. And if all goes well, your character will survive to claim rich rewards before embarking on a new adventure. This chapter covers the basics of the adventuring life, from the mechanics of movement to the complexities of social interaction. The rules for resting are also in this chapter, along with a discussion of the activities of your character might pursue between adventures. Whether adventurers are exploring a dusty dungeon or the complex relationships of a royal court, the game follows a natural rhythm as outlined in the book's introduction. Number one. The DM describes the environment. Then, number two, the players describe what they want to do. And then number three, the DM narrates the results of their actions. So I just want to point out here, you know, there is a huge variety of role-playing games out there these days, and not all games are played the same way. So not every RPG makes the assumptions that D&D does here as far as how it's played. As far as step one, DM describes the environment. Step two, players describe what they want to do. Step three, the DM narrates the results of their actions. So in a recent episode, when I was talking about making ability checks, and I had a little aside about, you know, how this game is played and how it should be the DM deciding if a role is called for, and if so, what kind of role, as opposed to the players just deciding to make roles. So again, that's specific to D&D. So if you're playing a different game, there might be different assumptions than these. The game might work differently. But this is how we play D&D, and it works really well. Typically, the DM uses a map as an outline of the adventure, tracking the character's progress as they explore dungeon corridors or wilderness regions. The DM's notes, including a key to the map, describe what the adventurers find as they enter each new area. Sometimes the passage of time and the adventurer's actions determine what happens, so the DM might use a timeline or a flowchart to track their progress instead of a map. So that's a little introduction to Chapter 8, and now we start getting into some specifics, starting with time. In situations where keeping track of the passage of time is important, the DM determines the time a task requires. The DM might use a different time scale depending on the context of the situation at hand. In a dungeon environment, the adventurer's movements happen on a scale of minutes. It takes them about a minute to creep down a long hallway, another minute to check for traps on the door at the end of the hall, and a good 10 minutes to search the chamber beyond for anything interesting or valuable. In a city or wilderness, a scale of hours is often more appropriate. Adventurers eager to reach the lonely tower at the heart of the forest hurry across those 15 miles in just under four hours' time. For long journeys, a scale of days works best. Following the road from Baldur's Gate to Waterdeep, the adventurers spend four uneventful days before a goblin ambush interrupts their journey. In combat and other fast-paced situations, the game relies on rounds, a six-second span of time described in Chapter 9. So yeah, in D&D, a round is six seconds. Now that might seem like kind of an odd number, but the nice thing about six second rounds is a minute is 10 rounds, 60 seconds. So I think that's probably why we use six second rounds, just because a minute is then 10 rounds, which is a nice round number and makes things easier. Next, we have a section on movement. 
So it makes a good point here that as the game master, you can summarize the movement of the PCs without having to calculate exact distances or travel times. For instance, you travel through the forest and find the dungeon entrance late in the evening of the third day. And even if you're in a dungeon, if it's a particularly large dungeon or a cave network, the GM could summarize movement between encounters. As in, after killing the Guardian at the entrance to the ancient Dwarven stronghold, you consult your map, which leads you through miles of echoing corridors to a chasm bridged by a narrow stone arch. So a way that I often think of this is I draw a parallel here to movies and television shows. As the DM or the GM, you decide where the camera goes. You decide when scenes begin and when they end. So just as, you know, in most TV shows, you don't normally have scenes where characters are doing mundane things like going to the bathroom or cooking dinner unless there's important dialogue that happens. The same way in a D&D game, you can skip over things that are interesting or aren't important. You can skip ahead to the next interesting part of the story. So now we're going to get a little more specific in this topic of movement. And we have here speed. Every character a monster in D&D has a speed. So for most PCs, that's going to be 30. 30 feet. And that is the distance that the character or monster can walk in around. This number assumes short bursts of energetic movement in the midst of a life-threatening situation. So again, you know, your speed, your speed characteristic on your character sheet is really most useful in a combat or some other situation where you're tracking time by the round. In other situations, there's better ways to handle figuring out how long it takes the characters to go from A to B than using their speed. So that brings us to travel pace. So when traveling, a group of characters can move at a normal, fast, or slow pace, as shown on the travel pace table, which is on page 182 in Player's Handbook. So a fast pace makes characters less perceptive, while a slow pace makes it possible to sneak around and to search an area more carefully. So this is a decision that the players can make when they're traveling distances more than, you know, what you would cover in a round or two. Are you going to, what pace are you going to go at? Do you want to travel at the normal pace or do you want to travel faster, but then there's a higher chance that you won't notice something important? Or do you want to travel more slowly, which enables you to move more stealthily? So now we go into an explanation of the forced march. So the travel pace table on page 182 is assuming that the PCs are traveling for eight hours a day. So it's assumed that they travel for eight hours and the rest of the day, the other 16 hours of the day, are taken up by sleeping, making and breaking camp, fixing meals, taking rests, eating, drinking, things like that. But of course, you can travel more than eight hours in a day, and that's where the forced march comes into, tray, into play. So when your player characters want to push on past the eight-hour normal travel time per day, you can rely on these forced march rules. So for each additional hour of travel beyond eight hours... The characters cover the distance shown in the hour column for their pace. So if we go and we look at this table on the next page, the travel pace table, we see, for example, under the normal pace, in a minute, they can travel 300 feet. In an hour, they can travel three miles. Or in a day, they can travel 24 miles. And you notice that the day value is eight times the hour value. So you travel three miles an hour for eight hours, you're going to travel 24 miles. So what this is saying is as soon as the player characters want to go beyond the eight hours, you just use this hour column per hour. 
So let's say they're traveling normal pace for eight hours. So they travel 24 miles and then they want to keep going. Each additional hour, they travel another three miles, assuming they're keeping that normal pace. So this is what we mean by a forced march. And when the players undergo a forced march, each hour they travel the distance in the hour column on that table, as we just discussed. And at the end of each hour of the forced march, the PCs must make a constitution saving throw. The difficulty of the saving throw is 10 plus 1 for each hour past 8 hours. So after that first hour of forced march, which would be your ninth hour of travel that day, it would be a DC 11 saving throw. And then it goes up by 1 every hour after that. On a failed saving throw, a character suffers one level of exhaustion. So let's take this opportunity to talk a little bit about exhaustion. Exhaustion is a condition, and the conditions are in Appendix A of the Player's Handbook. If you have the official D&D DM screen, then the conditions are on that screen, and, and it's very handy having them on the screen. However, if you don't use the DMD, DM screen, if I could talk, spit it out, Lex. If you don't use that, I would highly recommend in some way bookmarking Appendix A in the Player's Handbook because you will be using this a lot. This tells you all the conditions like deafened, frightened, grappled, incapacitated, blinded, charmed, paralyzed, invisible, petrified, etc. So you'll be using this a lot. You'll be referring to this a lot. So put some kind of bookmark there if you're not using a DM screen that has the conditions on it. So exhaustion is one of those conditions. And exhaustion is a really cool mechanic that I enjoy in 5th edition. And it's a mechanic that I don't think is used enough, at least in the, the core books. We don't refer to exhaustion a whole lot. So if you're homebrewing mechanics as a GM for D&D, you know, remember exhaustion because that can be a great mechanic to pull in anytime you're trying to reflect wear and tear on the player characters as they're pushing themselves beyond their limits. So again, if we're doing a force march every hour after the eight hours, we're making a saving throw. The saving throw is increasing in difficulty every hour. And every time we fail that saving throw, we gain a level of exhaustion. There are six levels of exhaustion. So the first level of exhaustion, you're not super tired yet, but it's starting to affect you and you have disadvantage on ability checks. At the second level of exhaustion, your speed is cut in half and these are cumulative. So at the second level of exhaustion, you have disadvantage on ability checks and you're moving at half speed. So you see right, right here, as soon as you have any PCs in the Force March that are at the second level of exhaustion, they're, they're going to slow the rest of the party down by half. Third level of exhaustion, you now also have disadvantage on attack rolls and saving throws. So, so basically, once you're at the third level of exhaustion, you have disadvantage on any roll that you make because every roll in the game is going to be an ability check, an attack roll, or a saving throw. Fourth level of exhaustion, your hit point maximum is cut in half. Fifth level of exhaustion, your speed is reduced to zero. So at this point, you're not force marching anymore because you can't move anymore. And then the sixth level of exhaustion is death. And again, you know, we'll cover exhaustion again when we get to Appendix A and we talk about all the conditions. But just to let you know now, the way that this works is these exhaustion levels are cumulative, as I said, and there are things in the game that will remove or add levels of exhaustion, sometimes multiple levels of exhaustion at a time. And it's just very simple and straightforward how this works. If you are level one exhaustion and something adds two levels of exhaustion, you're now level three exhaustion, just as you think it would work. If you finish a long rest, that reduces your exhaustion level by one, not all the way. So, you know, if you get yourself to level five exhaustion, it's going to take you days to recover from that, which I think is pretty realistic. So each long rest you take reduces your exhaustion level by one, provided 
that the creature has also ingested some food or drink. So if you don't have any food or drink with you, you can sleep all day long and you're not going to lose any of your exhaustion levels. So that's pretty cool. So now we'll go back to Force March. Just wanted to share exhaustion with you because, again, there's not a lot of things in the game that directly involve exhaustion. So it's not uncommon for DMs to not even be aware of it or not really know how it works. So there we go. There's the Force March. Very easy to handle. So let's give you another example. Let's say that you're doing the fast travel pace, which means that you're traveling 30 miles a day, four miles per hour. You travel your your eight hours, which is 30 miles. And now you're going to force march. So every hour that you force march, you'll travel an additional four hours. Now you notice here, we don't have the mathematical relationship between the hourly and the daily travel that we do at the normal pace. Normal pace, three miles an hour, 24 miles a day. Three miles an hour at eight hours is 24 miles. You know, it's three times eight equals 24, right? Well, with a fast pace, we're going four miles an hour, but in a day we only go 30 miles. Four times eight would be 32 miles. So it doesn't have that nice, neat relationship of, you know, your daily travel is exactly eight times your hourly travel. Same thing with the slow pace. It's two miles an hour, but 18 miles per day. So I'm not sure exactly why they did it that way. It's interesting. If you have any theories, let me know. I'd love to hear your theories. So while we're talking about travel pace right now, um, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but just to let you know, traveling at the fast pace, you have a minus five penalty to passive wisdom perception scores. So that's the drawback of being able to cover 30 miles in a day instead of 24 is your passive perception score is reduced by five, which means you're much less likely to notice an ambush, for instance. The bonus that you get for traveling the slow pace as opposed to the normal, so covering only 18 miles in a day instead of 24, is that you can use stealth. So you can travel 18 miles a day stealthily, which is pretty sweet. Now, DMs, personally, if I had PCs doing this, instead of having them make a stealth roll, I would use their passive stealth score for this and check that against the passive perception scores of any NPCs or monsters that they might come across to see whether they sneak by or not. You know, making a stealth roll is appropriate for an action, for something you're going to do over the course of a round or, or a minute or something like that. I think the passive stealth is the way to go when you're talking about a day's worth of marching. But that's just how I would do it. All right, so next we have some discussion on mounts and vehicles. I really like this. I really like how this is handled in 5th edition. Far less complicated than it could be. So players will often wonder, well, if I can travel 24 miles a day walking, how many miles a day can I travel if I'm riding a horse? And the answer to that is really simple. It's the same, 24 miles. So let's see what the PHB has to say about this. For short spans of time, up to an hour, many animals move much faster than humanoids. A mounted character can ride at a gallop for about an hour, covering twice the usual distance for a fast pace. So, if you have PCs and maybe they're, they're galloping away from the city, very, very um, epic moment, right? And you want to know how far can they get during that hour that they can gallop, then you would look at the fast pace, which is four miles an hour, and you would double that. So in that hour of galloping their horses, they travel eight miles. Very simple. Now, again, that's only for an hour. They can't do that for eight hours. You can't gallop a horse for eight hours. I don't know a lot about horses, but I'd be willing to bet you can't even gallop a horse for an hour. But hey, this is a game. It's not a reality simulator. So that's fine. So Mounted character can ride at a gallop for an hour, covering twice the usual distance for a fast pace. If fresh mounts are available every 8 to 10 miles, characters can cover larger distance at this pace, but this is very rare except in densely populated areas. So basically, this would be a situation where 
the character can ride a horse at a gallop for an hour and then change horses, right? And this would be a fresh horse. This wouldn't be like another horse that they have with them that's also running at a gallop to keep up. So maybe you're in a city or you've got something set up like the Pony Express where there are fresh horses every every eight miles, then, then that could work and you could keep that pace going if you're switching horses every hour. But that's going to be the exception, not the rule. Characters in wagons, carriages, or other land vehicles choose a pace as normal. So you choose fast, normal, or slow pace with the benefits or drawbacks thereby. Characters in a waterborne vessel are limited to the speed of the vessel, see chapter 5, and they don't suffer penalties for a fast pace or gain benefits from a slow pace. Again, that makes sense. They're, they're riding on a ship or, or something like that. Depending on the vessel and the size of the crew, ships might be able to travel up to 24 hours a day. Certain special mounts, such as a Pegasus or Griffin, or special vehicles, such as a Carpet of Flying, allow you to travel more swiftly. The Dungeon Master's Guide contains more information on special mounts, or I'm sorry, on special methods of travel. So we'll cover that when we get to the DMG. So what this doesn't say explicitly, you kind of have to read between the lines here, or or you kind of have to go by what is said and what isn't said. But what isn't said explicitly is that unless you're talking about galloping a horse for that one hour, you can gallop. Your travel pace is not affected by whether you're walking or riding a horse. It's the same for how much you can cover in a day. And really, that makes sense. You know, if you're riding a horse, horses really don't walk much faster than humans do. And if you're going to be riding a horse for eight hours, most of that eight hours, you're going to be walking. Um, The horse can't run (laughs) at a gallop or a canter or a trot for eight hours. So you can just kind of hand wave that, you know, if they're riding a horse or they're riding mules, it doesn't matter. You can also hand wave the difference in the speeds of player characters. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about a human with a speed of 30 or a dwarf with a speed of 25, travel pace is the same. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't really explain it here. I think it it has more of an explanation for the reasoning behind this in the Dungeon Master's Guide, which we'll we'll get to eventually. But if I remember correctly from from what it says in the Dungeon Master's Guide, the basic explanation for this is that difference of speed between a dwarf and a human, while important on a tactical scale where you're using six-second rounds, when you're talking about eight hours of walking, that difference kind of goes away. It's not significant. It's not important. You know, if you're in a combat and you're going round by round, six-second rounds, the dwarf might have a little harder time crossing the room quite as quickly as a human or the elf does or the wood elf who has the 35 movement but when you're talking about hiking for eight hours the difference between a dwarf a human and a wood elf is not really relevant not to say that there isn't a difference but that is at a a level of resolution that's beyond what we care about when we're playing this game difficult terrain the travel speeds given in the travel pace table assume relatively simple terrain, roads, open plains, or clear dungeon corridors. But of course, venturers often face dense forests, deep swamps, rubble-filled ruins, steep mountains, and ice-covered ground, all considered difficult terrain. So again, we're not going to have different modifiers for different types of terrain. It's either normal or difficult. If it is difficult terrain, then you move at half speed, exactly the way difficult terrain works on the tactical scale of rounds you move at half your speed. So you can only cover half the normal distance in a minute, an hour, or a day on the travel pace table. We then have some discussion of some special types of movement. So we have climbing, swimming, and crawling. So when you're climbing or swimming, each foot of movement costs one extra foot or two extra feet in difficult terrain, unless a creature has a climbing or swimming speed. So it's really, you know, it's really simple. You know, it's basically if you're climbing or you're swimming, you can go half as far as you normally could. Unless, of course, you're in difficult terrain, then it's a third as far. At the DM's option, climbing a slippery vertical surface or one with few handholds requires a successful strength athletics check. 
Similarly, gaining any distance in rough water might require a successful strength athletics check. Now, I just noticed something here that I never noticed before. The heading of this paragraph is climbing, swimming, and crawling. However, there's no mention whatsoever of crawling (laughs) in the paragraph. But I think it's a fairly safe assumption if we say that they meant to include crawling with climbing and swimming when they were saying that each foot of movement costs one extra foot or two extra feet if it's difficult terrain. So I think it's a pretty safe guess to say that when you're crawling, it's the same deal as when you're climbing or swimming. Each foot of movement costs an extra foot or two feet if you're in difficult terrain. Next, we have jumping. And this is, you know, if you're in a situation when you need to know how far or how high a PC can jump, here you go on page 182. It's pretty easy to figure out, especially compared to some previous editions, how this was handled. So when you make a long jump, you can jump a number of feet up to your strength score if you move at least 10 feet on foot immediately before the jump. So basically, you're getting a running head start. If you're getting a running head start, you can jump a number of feet equal to your strength score. If you're making a standing long jump, you can only leap half that amount. So if your strength is 16, if you get a running start, you can jump 16 feet. If you don't get a running start, you can jump eight feet. And again, I'm saying running start because that's how we say it, but you know, you don't technically have to be quote running. You just need to use 10 feet of movement before you jump. Either way, each foot you clear on the jump costs a foot of movement. So you can't game the system and get extra movement by jumping. Every foot that you jump takes movement. Kind of makes sense. So this is assuming that the height of your jump doesn't matter, like you're jumping across a stream or a chasm. At the DM's option, you must succeed on a DC 10 strength athletics check to clear a low obstacle no taller than a quarter of the jump's distance, such as a hedge or low wall. Otherwise, you hit the obstacle. Now, when you jump, if you land in difficult terrain, you must then succeed at a DC 10 dexterity acrobatics check to land on your feet. If you fail that check, you land prone. So that's kind of a a nice kind of corner case there to to keep in mind, you know, that, that could definitely come into play, especially during a combat if you're jumping and you're landing in difficult terrain then you got to make that dexterity acrobatics check or you land on your ass basically and i don't know if we've covered this yet but if we haven't we will but standing up from being prone in this edition just costs half your movement so depending how much of your movement you use for the jump you might still have enough movement left at the end if you fall on your ass to get back up or you might not you might have to wait till the next round. So that's the long jump. High jump. When you make a high jump, you can leap into the air a number of feet equal to three plus your strength modifier, not score, your modifier, if you move at least 10 feet on foot immediately before the jump. So if you get a, a head start of 10 feet or more, you can jump straight up equal to three plus your strength bonus. If on the other hand, you're making a standing long jump, you can only jump half that distance. So pretty simple. Either way, again, each foot you clear on the jump costs a foot of movement. In some circumstances, your DM might allow you to make a strength athletics check to jump higher than you normally can. So that's cool. You know, if you really need to jump up, maybe to grab a ledge or something, and, you know, just your flat, how high you can jump isn't quite enough. As a DM, you could let them make an athletics check to jump a little higher than that. You can extend your arms half your height above yourself during the jump. Thus, you can reach above you a distance equal to the height of the jump plus one and a half times your height. Again, this is all pretty logical and straightforward. And honestly, you know, a lot of these permutations are things that you could figure out for yourself. But the nice thing about having these things written out for you is you don't have to figure them out for yourself, which takes time and processing power that when you're running a game can be better spent on other things. This is Shane from the Total Party Thrill Podcast, and you're listening to Lex Starwalker on Game Master's Journey. I want to give a quick shout out to the patrons of Starwalker Studios. The support of the patrons makes this show possible. 
If you enjoy Game Master's Journey and you'd like to give a little back, becoming a patron is a great way to do so. Patrons get some cool perks like game material I make for Primordia and access to a special monthly podcast I produce just for the patrons. I'd also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to my tier four patron, Mr. Steve Strickland. Let's hear it for Steve. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you to all the patrons. You can find out more about becoming a patron by clicking on the Patreon button at the top of the show notes at StarWalkerStudios.com. So now we'll talk about activities while traveling. So first of all, it suggests that as a DM, you ask for a marching order when player characters are traveling. And, you know, if you're doing theater of the mind, then a marching order is a great thing to have just all the time. Now, this is simplified from the way we used to do it back in the day where we literally had, you know, if you have six player characters and you have a marching order, six spaces long or whatever. Instead, in fifth edition, this is simplified into saying that you have three ranks, a front rank, one or more middle ranks, and the back rank. Characters in the front and back ranks need enough room to travel side by side with others in their rank. When space is too tight, the marching order must change, usually by moving characters to a middle rank. And the reason that we're not worrying about the middle rank as far as how many ranks that actually is, is because it doesn't really matter. But the front and the rear rank do matter because if you're in the front rank and something's ahead of you, you're going to encounter it first. Similarly, if you're in the rear rank and something's behind you, you're going to encounter it first. In the middle, it doesn't really matter. And corner case, if there are fewer than three ranks, they are a front rank and a back rank. If there's only one rank, it's considered a front rank. Stealth. When traveling at a slow pace, the characters can move stealthily. As long as they're not in the open, they can try to surprise or sneak by other creatures they encounter. And I think this is going to be a recurring theme on these episodes. You know, you you can't do the impossible. As the GM, it's totally okay and it's good to say that certain things are impossible. Sure, this is a fantasy world and sure, it's a game but you still can't do things that are impossible. If you don't have a fly speed, you can't fly, right? (laughs) If I jump out of a third story window, it doesn't matter how well I roll on my jump, I'm not gonna fly, I'm gonna fall. So, you know, one of those impossible things that you can't do is be stealthy and unobserved if you're completely out in the open because there's nowhere to hide. Now, if you have an invisibility spell, that's different. Next, we have noticing threats. Use the passive wisdom perception scores of the characters to determine whether anyone in the group notices a hidden threat. So this is a case where most often your PC's passive wisdom perception score is going to be contested by an active stealth role by your NPC. Because again, you know, this passive score is representing just your level of awareness over an eight hour march where An NPC setting an ambush and hiding, you know, that hiding is an action, right? It's a specific thing that they do in a specific point of time. It's not representing a continuous effort over a long span of time. Because once you make yourself a good hiding spot, all you have to do is not move and not make noise to remain hidden. It's not like you have to keep hiding yourself. The DM might decide that a threat can be noticed only by characters in a particular rank. And this is usually how I do it. So, you know, if if they're traveling and something ahead is hiding, only the front rank gets a chance to notice that. Because by the time the middle rank would have a chance to notice, it no longer matters because the front rank has been ambushed at that point. Same thing if, if something's sneaking up on the party from behind, only the back rank has a chance to notice that threat. So the book says, for example, as the characters are exploring a maze of tunnels, the DM might decide that only those characters in the back rank have a chance to hear or spot a stealthy creature following the group, while characters in the front and middle ranks cannot. And again, it just makes logical sense. 
And again, while traveling at a fast pace, characters take a minus five penalty to their passive perception scores to notice hidden threats. Encountering creatures. If the DM determines that the adventurers encounter other creatures while they're traveling, it's up to both groups to decide what happens next. Either group might decide to attack, initiate a conversation, run away, or wait to see what the other group does. Surprising foes. If the adventurers encounter a hostile creature or group, the DM determines whether the adventurers or their foes might be surprised when combat ends. See Chapter 9 for more about surprise. So one thing that I will point out here, there's a very important piece of information or a very important little system that is missing from both the player's handbook and the DMG, which is encounter distance. Now, this is something I remember from way back in the day running second edition, where when you have an encounter, there's a role you can make that is modified by the terrain and, and things like that, that help you decide how far these two parties are from one another when you roll initiative and combat or whatever begins. I don't know why this is not in the player's handbook or the DMG. If it is, if you found it, let me know because I've never been able to find it. I can only assume it was an oversight. It is, however, on the official Dungeon Master screen for D&D. So if you have that, check out your Dungeon Master screen. There is a little chart for encounter distance where if you need to know how far the PCs are from the NPCs or the monsters when combat starts, you can make a roll and consult that and figure that out really easily. So that's very handy. All right, now here's another really cool little section that I think many of us probably overlook or forget about, but is very helpful when it comes to traveling. And that's this other activities section here. Characters who turn their attention to other tasks as a group travels are not focused on watching for danger. These characters don't contribute their passive wisdom perception scores to the group's chance of noticing hidden threats. However, a character not watching for danger can do one of the following activities instead or some other activity with the DM's permission. So there's four activities described here, navigating, drawing a map, tracking, and foraging. So before I go into these specifics, what this is saying basically is if the PCs are traveling, let's say they're traveling overland, right? From one city to another, the character who is navigating, let's say they're not on a road, they're traveling through the wilderness, so they need to navigate. That character who is navigating is distracted enough by the act of navigating that they don't get to use their passive perception score to determine if they detect something hidden or whatever along their route. Same thing with a character that's drawing a map or a character who's tracking. If, if they're tracking a quarry through the wilderness, that character doing the tracking doesn't get to use their wisdom perception to know if they spot something or not. Also foraging. Now, I will point out, at least in the revised ranger, I'm not sure about the ranger in the player's handbook because I don't use that ranger anymore, but the revised ranger, one of the abilities that that ranger gets is they don't have this limitation. So a ranger, if you're using revised ranger at least, can track or navigate or forage while they're traveling and still be able to contribute to looking out for danger with their passive perception score. So this can actually matter. You might think this is a little, you know, fiddly and who cares, but it can actually matter because sometimes in a group you will have one character who has a really high perception compared to everyone else. But if they're tracking someone or navigating or something like that and they're not a ranger and that character is the one doing the tracking or the navigating or the foraging or whatever, then you're not using their super high passive perception to determine if the group notices something. You're using the other character scores, which may be significantly lower. So it can matter. So let's look at what's said about these other activities. We have navigate. The character can try to prevent the group from becoming lost, making wisdom survival check when the DM calls for it. And there's more rules about getting lost in the DMG that we'll get to someday. Drawing a map. Character can draw a map that records the group's progress and helps the characters get on back, get back on course if they're lost. No ability check is required for this. 
Personally, I would have a check. And my check would determine how accurate that map is and things like that might come into play in the future if the players or the player characters are trying to remember something from their journey and maybe the players don't actually remember it. If it's something that might have been on that map, then I might call for some kind of check to see if their map was detailed enough to have that information. But at least saying here in the book, in general, they don't have to make a check to make a map. Track? A character can follow the tracks of another creature using wisdom survival. Again, there's more on this in the DMG. And finally, forage. The character can keep an eye out for ready sources of food and water, again, making wisdom survival. And again, we'll discuss this more in the DMG. So there is a little side box here that's relevant for this traveling discussion, splitting up the party. So this is just basically saying that in if you're in a situation where the party splits up, each of those smaller parties will have their own front, middle, and back ranks. Pretty obvious, I think. All right, so now we have a section on environment. So here are some, some other miscellaneous systems. We've got falling. Creatures who fall take 1d6 bludgeoning damage for every 10 feet of the fall to a maximum of 20d6. So that's representing terminal velocity, basically. You, you can only fall so fast, and once you hit terminal velocity, you stop accelerating. So in D&D terms, the maximum damage you can take from a fall is 20d6. The creature lands prone unless it avoids taking damage from the fall. So that's pretty cool. So if you fall and somehow you don't take any damage, you don't land prone. Now, personally, if a PC falls, takes damage, and is not knocked unconscious by the damage, I would probably let them make an acrobatics check, a dexterity acrobatics check to not land prone. But again, that's my own little house rule that's, you know, not in the book. Suffocating. Hey, here's a handy thing to know about. Um, not something you need to know all the time as a DM. You, you might run an entire campaign and never have to use this, but can come in handy if you're going to have to deal with suffocation so I've talked before on the show about, you know, thinking about any definite kind of systems like this that are going to come up in a session when you're doing your prep. You know, so if I'm getting ready to run a session and I think there's a good chance that suffocation, drowning, things like that might come into play, then I would review something like this so that I have it fresh in mind, maybe even write the system itself on a post-it note, put it on my GM screen or somewhere easily accessed. So when it comes up, I either have it memorized or I have it handy so I don't have to waste a bunch of time finding the rule. So a creature can hold its breath for a number of minutes equal to one plus its constitution modifier, minimum of 30 seconds. So if your constitution modifier is minus one, one Plus negative one is zero, but it's a minimum of 30 seconds. So there you go. When a creature runs out of breath, it can survive for a number of rounds equal to its constitution modifier, minimum one round. At the start of its next turn, it drops to zero hit points and is dying. So here's an example. A creature with a constitution of 14 can hold its breath for three minutes. Again, the reason that is, is a... 14 ability score has a plus two bonus and the number of minutes you can hold your breath is one plus your constitution bonus. So one plus plus two in this case, which is three minutes. After that three minutes, the creature starts suffocating, at which point it has two rounds to reach air before it drops to zero hit points. And again, we know it's two rounds because once you're suffocating, you can survive for a number of rounds equal to your constitution modifier. Creature has a constitution 14, so that's a plus two modifier. So in this example, this person with constitution 14 plus two modifier can hold its breath for three rounds or three minutes, I'm sorry. And then after that, it starts suffocating and that will take two rounds before it then drops to zero hit points. And then you're making death saving throws. Vision and light. So a lot of the things in the game, a lot of systems in the game rely upon sight and, and how well can you see something, something like, you know, targeting 
something with a spell or trying to hit someone with an arrow fired from your bow. So obviously in these situations, darkness and other things that can obscure your vision are going to provide some difficulties. So a given area can be lightly or heavily obscured. And these are game terms that have specific mechanics. So if an area is lightly obscured, and this includes things like dim light, patchy fog, or moderate foliage, creatures have disadvantage on wisdom perception checks that rely on sight. So, you know, one of these lightly obscured conditions is something like dim light. So maybe it's dusk. So the characters are out in the wilderness. It's dusk. It's low light. It's considered lightly obscured. And anytime they're making a wisdom perception roll involving sight, they're at disadvantage because of that. A heavily obscured area, such as darkness, opaque fog, or dense foliage, blocks vision entirely. A creature in a heavily obscured area effectively suffers from the blinded condition. So again, we would go to Appendix A to see what are the effects of the blinded condition. So let's do that. So the effects of the blinded condition are that a blinded creature can't see and automatically fails any ability check that requires sight. Attack rolls against the creature have advantage, and the creature's attack rolls have disadvantage. So that's interesting. I think this is interesting because its first bullet point says that the blinded creature automatically fails any ability check that requires sight. But then it also says in the next bullet point that your attack rolls have disadvantage. So these might seem to contradict each other, but I don't think they really do. For instance, let's take an example. Let's say my character is blinded because I'm in a heavily obscured area. It's dark. I don't have dark vision, so it's heavily obscured. I'm considered to be blinded, and I want to try to shoot an enemy with my bow. If I were the DM in this situation, I would say that if that enemy is holding still, not making any noise that I could perceive, it's impossible. You don't even get to make an attack roll because you can't see. There's no way you could know where that enemy is. And this would refer to this first bullet point under blinded, which says that you would automatically fail any ability check that requires sight. If, on the other hand, maybe this enemy is moving through underbrush and making some noise, then you would not automatically fail at trying to shoot it with your bow because this attack roll no longer completely relies on sight because you do have some sounds to give you an idea where this thing is. So then we would go to the second bullet point, which says that any attack rolls would have disadvantage. So in that situation, it's moving through the underbrush. You can hear it a little bit. I'd say, okay, the roll doesn't automatically fail because you can't hear it. It doesn't completely rely on sight, but you're going to have disadvantage. So that's kind of an example of how you can kind of figure these situations out. All right, so going back to heavily obscured, the presence or absence of light in an environment creates three categories of illumination, bright light, dim light, and darkness. So then we define these. Bright light lets most creatures see normally. Even gloomy days provide bright light, as do torches, lanterns, fires, and other sources of illumination within a specific radius. So for instance, if you look at the light spell, it will tell you that it provides bright light for a certain radius and then dim light for a certain radius beyond that. So again, you know, remember here that even on a gloomy day, you know, it's thunderstorming or whatever, it's still considered bright light as far as mechanics are concerned. Next, we have dim light, also called shadows, creates a lightly obscured area. So then, you know, we're referring to this lightly obscured. So if it's dim light, it's considered lightly obscured, which means that you have disadvantage on wisdom perception checks that rely on sight. An area of dim light is usually a boundary between a source of bright light, such as a torch, and the surrounding darkness. The soft light of twilight and dawn also counts as dim light. A particularly brilliant full moon might bathe the land in dim light. So if it's, you know, the sun's going down or the sun's coming up, that's dim light. If it's a bright full moon in the middle of the night, that could be dim light. 
And I think another possibility would be if you are in a forest during the day, but it has a very heavy canopy, you could as a DM rule that that is dim light as well. It's up to you. Whatever uh, seems reasonable and logical. Next, we have darkness creates a heavily obscured area. Characters face darkness outdoors at night, even most, most moonlit nights within the confines of an unlit dungeon or a subterranean vault or in an area of magical darkness. So again, you know, we're saying if it's a a particularly bright full moon on a clear night and you're not beneath a canopy of trees, you could have the DM say that that's dim light. But other than that very specific circumstance, even a moonlit night is still considered darkness. And I would say even, you know, even if it's a super bright full moon on a cloudless night, if you're beneath a canopy of trees, that would still be darkness. Because I've been in the woods at night without a flashlight. It's fucking dark. All right, next, blind sight. A creature with blind sight can perceive its surroundings without relying on sight within a specific radius. And that's how it works. Certain creatures in the game will tell you this creature has blind sight, 60 foot radius, for instance. Creatures without eyes, such as oozes, and creatures with an echolocation or heightened senses, such as bats and true dragons, have this sense. Next, we have dark vision. Many creatures in the worlds of D&D, especially those that dwell underground, have dark vision. For instance, dwarves and elves have dark vision. Within a specified range, a creature with dark vision can see in darkness as if the darkness were dim light. So, you know, again... This is, this is very specific. So it's saying if you have dark vision and you're in total darkness, it's considered dim light for you. Which again, if we refer back to dim light, dim light creates a lightly obscured area. So if you're using dark vision in total darkness, it's lightly obscured, which means you have disadvantage on wisdom perception checks that rely on sight. Now, this is something I just realized myself doing this right now. This is something I haven't been doing. So your elves and dwarves in, in a dungeon or anywhere else, it's totally dark. They're using dark vision. They have disadvantage on wisdom perception that relies on sight. I have not been doing that. I will start doing that. And again, that's within the range of dark vision. So, you know, elves and dwarves usually have a dark vision of 60 feet. So that means if something's within 60 feet, they have disadvantage on their wisdom perception check to see it. But if it's farther than 60 feet away, then it's considered to be darkness, which is heavily obscured. So there you go. However, the creature can't discern color in darkness, only shades of gray. So this, this can be relevant. You know, if, if your elf or dwarf is in full darkness and observing something, they, they can't see any colors. And now we have true sight. A creature with true sight can, out to a specific range, see in normal and magical darkness, see invisible creatures and objects, automatically detect visual illusions and succeed on saving throws against them. So if you have true sight, you automatically succeed on saving throws against visual illusions and perceives the original form of a shape changer or a creature that is transformed by magic. Furthermore, the creature can also see into the ethereal plane. So if you got something like a phase spider that's phased into the ethereal plane, a character with true sight can still see it. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up episode 142 of Game Master's Journey. Thank you so much for joining me on the journey today. Really appreciate you downloading and listening to the show. Again, I hope that you'll head over to the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com and click the Patreon button at the top of the show notes and check out my Patreon page and see all the cool stuff you can get for $5 a month. I really appreciate the support of the patrons. You guys keep me going You guys keep the show going and, you know, I got to (laughs) eat sometimes at least. So also at the website, starwalkerstudios.com, you can find all of the ways that you can get a hold of me. If you'd like to give me feedback on the show or ask a question or propose a possible future topic, there are lots of ways you can get a hold of me on the website. I have Twitter, Google Plus, Facebook. I have boards on Pinterest where I collect fantasy and science fiction art. I have a YouTube channel where I produce actual play videos. 
I have a voicemail number for Game Master's Journey, so you can actually call me and leave a message. And if your feedback or question is enlightening and entertaining, you might even hear your message on the show. You can also find a link to the Game Master's Journey community where you can share ideas and thoughts with other listener GMs. And finally, as I already said, you can find a link to my Patreon page, and there are other ways that you can support the show too, in addition to becoming a patron. I have a nice bright pink donate button on the website, so you can make a one-time donation if that's more your speed. And another great way that you can help support the show is using my Amazon referral link, which you'll find on the support page on the website. You can click that link and go do your shopping on Amazon and it won't cost you a dime extra or even a penny extra, but it really helps out Starwalker Studios when you use that Amazon referral link. So you can find all this stuff and more at starwalkerstudios.com. So I hope you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.